0: Welcome to another episode of Well Said. I'm excited to welcome my friend, Tony Kennett. Tony is the co-founder and executive director of Chalkboard Review and Chalkboard Media, where he promotes intellectual diversity in American education. Thank you, Tony, for joining the show.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: So tell us a little about your work before we jump into things here with the topic.
1: So I was kind of a rising star in K-12 through 12 education. I was a teacher of the year, first two years, jumped into teaching in larger schools. Eventually I was in administration directing a ton of different teachers. And I was really aggravated because on the side doing some political editorials, I noticed that whenever I sent an education piece over to uh, kind of center or left-wing groups, they wouldn't publish my piece, even if it was apolitical. And that was happening all over. Mm. And so we started a education publication that would publish any education piece, as long as it wasn't word salad or complete garbage, um, from any political perspective. And what we ended up getting was a huge audience of teachers, parents, students, anyone interested remotely in education. And now we also break underreported or often ignored uh, national education news stories. And honestly, the work that we get to do is awesome. I love getting to shine a light on what's going on in education and more often than not seeing the cockroaches scatter as a result.
0: Yeah. No, that's super encouraging too, especially in a time of all where the media is just so biased and it's very difficult to find truth in stories. Um, I'm curious, how long have you guys been around?
1: We have not yet hit the two-year mark. That will be in November. So super, we're a year fast. and what, yeah. two-thirds? I, I don't know all of the yeah. math. Having a newborn, I probably should know all of the <laughs> the month calculations, but no, that hasn't right. quite set in yet.
0: Yeah. So you guys, you, I think your, your fast growth is evidence that there's like a hunger for this, this type of reporting and this type of like, well, just media outlets that, that exist. Um, I
1: really this. like that you phrased it that way because I don't like when people say, oh, wow, you guys just must be doing something right. You guys must <laughs> like have some kind of secret hidden talent. And and while I appreciate the compliment, I don't think so. I We're just filling a need. There's a need mm-hmm. for education news. That's going to write stories based on the story, not based on the political narrative of the day.
0: Exactly, exactly. Okay, so this brings me to our topic today because this is something that I I think you're going to be able to uh, really enlighten us on. Um, So I call this episode the vicious cycle of indoctrination because we're being told, or it's mostly implied, that intellectual diversity is the enemy now, right? Free speech and the exchange of differing ideas are the enemy. So it's clear that the goal of this outlook is to remove all dissenting voices and ideas from the academy. But what I find more disconcerting is the willingness to conform on the part of the students. Conformity is now like the cool thing with kids. It's the loser nerds who are the dissenters. And this is very similar to what we saw in the the way the Soviet Union was run. And we've seen this with tyrannical regimes as well. But Soviet Union comparisons typically fall on deaf ears when we're talking to like Gen Z or millennials and we're trying to talk about like the consequences and the ultimate outcomes. So it got me thinking, why? Why is there so little resistance on the student side? It seems that by the time students step on campus, they're so desensitized towards diversity, equity and inclusion terminology and rhetoric that it doesn't seem that unusual when they hear it on campus over and over again. Um, it seems like they're already kind of worn down. And if we're thinking about kind of the ultimate goals here, when it comes to language and changing the meaning of things, this is how it's done. I mean, when it comes to convincing Mm -hmm. people of your radical ideas, wearing them down numbing them to your rhetoric through constant exposure and repetition, that's brainwashing. That is like, congratulations, you've been successfully brainwashed, right? So it's like, so Tony, I brought you on to shed some light on this, this concern that I have. And I want to know from your, your perspective, what's going on in K through 12 that is leading to what I'm seeing in the higher ed.
1: Well, honestly, I I consider it kind of a two-pronged analogy here. So first, I call it the hurricane effect. So I grew up in the Midwest. We don't have hurricanes in the Midwest, (laughs) but I grew up hearing about them often. And uh, quite honestly, you get desensitized so that you don't really start to pay attention or care every time you hear hurricane what's her name hit this part of the coast Mm -hmm. and they say on the news oh there was you know complete devastation and I think you know in the same way we told children about you know the USSR and also about East Germany and you know kind of the horrible authoritarianism that ruined the lives of millions that slaughtered millions through famine and through political violence and you just tell someone about that over and over and over but you there's no passion behind it there's no personal story there there's no actual anecdote of i lost my home and everything i had when hurricane katrina swept through in 2005 and it's not until a friend of mine actually 2 years ago who lived in illinois his entire life moved out to the carolinas and they had a hurricane came through and it wrecked part of his house and we were chatting about a month later and he said i get it now he's hmm. like i understand and in the same way i had a friend who actually went to uh, one of the nations that the Soviet Union had impacted during all of the African civil wars and talked with a lot of people whose lives were ruined because of these machete-wielding terrorists that came through in the communist revolutions in Africa in the 80s and 90s, where they said, I get it now. And unfortunately, and also fortunately, we have a lot of students who are going to colleges, who are hearing about all of the glories and the wonders of socialism, even though they've been told that Socialism and communism were horrible things and were evil things. They've never actually spoken to the Cuban refugees who came to this country on on bloated car tires just to escape such horrors, and right. it, it's been poo pooed for so long. And they've been instead told about all of these other horrible, vicious things that they do sort of have an emotional connection to because they've seen people crying on camera and they've seen right. you know people who have said, "Oh, I'm I'm so triggered by everything around me," that. To them, that is much more of a real threat based on the education system and what it's propped up rather than what has been kind of poo-pooed since we're no longer fighting the Cold War. And so that's why you're seeing kind of this weird dichotomy of students who don't really care about the true evils that came out of the 20th century and instead Mm -hmm. hyper-sensualize all of these... Right. crazy, insane, progressive boogeymen um, so, until they yeah. finally just stop caring altogether, which is what you see in a lot of freshmen seminars and colleges.
0: Right. And like I guess like, I don't want to be too cynical here, but I guess my concern is also, is it even a matter of just hearing others' stories or friends and family stories? Like, is it something that would have to directly affect them in order for them to, to understand and respect it? Because I mean, the strange thing is like, obviously there's folks like you and I who are like well read in history and we respect it and, and, you know, we're able to understand these consequences without having been directly affected by, by these issues. And so what, what's the difference then between us and like folks like us who, who don't need to have personal experience in order to take something seriously. And, and then what we're seeing right now going on with Gen Z and millennial generations.
1: So this is the age old question of parenting, right? You know, how do you define the child that's going to need to touch the hot stove themselves? And and how do you differentiate that individual between the kid who will see the hot stove, will see the burn scar on your hand and go, ah, I'm not going to touch the hot stove. So I actually had an assistant pastor in a a, a town that I lived in when I was in Wisconsin. Uh, and he would tell me often, he's a Hispanic man, tell me how his parents fought for certain privileges that he would get to enjoy. And he's always held those very sacredly said, because I saw the sweat on my father's brow. Those are the exact words that he used. Huh. Yeah. And he says though, but with his kids, he's got one son who he said needs to sweat on his own. And then he has a daughter who can like, he can read the face of a thousand people, I guess is how, is how he put it and and make her own decisions based on that. And unfortunately, there are people who, and this is a big, this has been talked about for thousands of years, are going to need to experience the hardships themselves. And I think this is why, at least in our society, libertarianism isn't good enough. And the idea that everyone can just do whatever they want, and it's all great and happy, you need actual societal moral standards to dictate what is good and what isn't, and then have definitive consequences, both socially, morally, and then also ethically and economically for the individual to encounter. So right. in regards to you know our education system, we've become so detached from moral and social consequences that students actually don't engage with the sweat of the brow anymore and actually encountering actions. Back then, if you said something really gross and you push someone too far, they would just beat the crud out of you behind the shed after school. I mean, that was a thing. I mean, there (laughs) There were were like, there
0: were tangible consequences, (laughs) right?
1: But now everything is so completely flipped that there's Mm. this new puritanical cast that has completely turned like the societal moral fabric on its head. And it's desensitized a huge block of students because it's not even worth beginning to engage in this game because there's no way to win.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I want to, I want to pull on something that you said there, but first I want to ask you is because you mentioned morality and when we have like such a, we're in a very decadent time, right? Like there's not, there's not a lot of threat to us. And I think that's kind of what's led us to, so if you have, even if you have a moral society in a very decadent time, is it not a natural cycle or is this something that we shouldn't expect, right? That people are going to start challenging moral ideas in order to find, in order to like, just, to, to find something else to, to like kind of challenge that and, and break it down.
1: So this was something that the Roman civilization struggled mm. with repeatedly. Again, there were two huge societies, the Epicureans and the Stoics who said, look, we're at a time of unprecedented decadence and we are able to experience things as a society that no other culture has ever experienced. And so one side made the entire pursuit of their lives, pleasure and found mm-hmm. out that it led nowhere and so they were questioning moral ethics and they were like raping kids and all this other oh crazy God. stuff wow. weird to see the uh, comparisons there Not to our modern society yep yeah <laughs> and then you have the stoics who often would become so detached that they would almost do this like both sides wrong everyone leave me alone aggressive isolationism which we also see today mm-hmm. and it's it's a very strange place to be in. i, I agree with you it is cyclical because whenever humans don't have to encounter hardship to learn the lessons as to why certain things are valuable, and more importantly, what is valuable about comfort and what is not, and what yeah. is valuable about procuring things for your family and what is not, you know, the difference between how you spend your time and value it. And so, yeah, we are in another cycle of that, and it's going to be interesting. History shows that times of unlimited decadence do not last forever Uh, the time in and of itself is not unlimited so i'm not sure how that's going to even out yet but it is encouraging to me at least to see in a large a large trend late-term millennials like yours truly and then a lot of gen z and even i-alpha behind them are really starting to question just the eternal decadence they're like what's the point yeah i'm entertained but it it doesn't satisfy me and we're seeing that huge come out of generation z and i-alpha Like that's going to be a major counterculture trend, I think, in the next couple of years to decades.
0: Okay. So going back on something you said about the complacency um, issue with when students get onto campus, there does seem to be kind of like we mentioned, like this desensitization to Mm. this rhetoric that they're constantly hit over the head with all the way through K through 12. So what are some of the trends that you're seeing with diversity, equity, inclusion, critical race theory, the trans theory stuff, like all of that being pushed in K through 12, how are students receiving it? How is it being taught? what are some of the major trends that you're seeing that you think are carrying over to that desensitization, that complacency that they're, they're taking with them to college?
1: So there's this idea that it's just being taught as a definitive science. Right. So all of these these hyper socialized norms that are um, being brought forward as as the moral right in society and from from the progressive from the hyper progressive left uh, in regards to race in regards to gender has become such an explicitly taught science that to question it at all, even if it's a clarification style question, hmm. is considered an egregious sin. It's considered an aggression. In fact, there are school districts and one fairly near me that's been in the news recently um, that will actually charge students with a microaggression if they make any student uncomfortable along racial or gender or sexual baselines, if they question anything about those things at all. yeah. And so a lot of students, they know they're not going to be able to fight. There's just not an energy to fight a battle that because it is taught as such a settled science, mm-hmm. they don't think they're going to be able to win. So if someone brings a new topic to the conversation, so I, I, sports are a great example for this. So someone says, I think that this team is going to do really well this year. That is a brand new idea. And then people will argue out the specifics of why that is. And you feel as though you can contribute something because it's not a settled science. However, if someone comes in and argues something that is universally taught as true, you're not going to engage in that conversation. There's just no point that mm-hmm. like trying to you're like trying to smash a sledgehammer against like a massive boulder. Yeah, you may make a little bit of chipping progress, but you're not going to take down that entire boulder with just your sledgehammer. And that's where a lot of students are. They may disagree with what's being taught. Uh, they may be tired of it. They may remember that a couple weeks ago there was a different terminology for things. But it's just useless to fight against it because you, risk ostrac- you you risk ostracization. You risk, you know, potentially violence, depending on the part of the country you're in, and depending on you know, what stage of life you're in, a lot of university situations, there may be issues of violence, students rejecting some things DEI and on the left. And so it's really not too different from East Germany. Yeah. Uh, you're seeing people that just aren't putting up a fight because to do so would be dangerous. And also really wouldn't bring about any profit. And this is something that the mm. Stasi later recognized uh, because they thought, oh, well, if we relax these restrictions, you know, people are only party members because they love communism. No, people were just party members because they were terrified to be anything else. And right. I think we're seeing a lot of this, the same similarity. So that's why they're desensitized. This is just the only quiet, calm, easy road of least resistance forward.
0: Right. So- but on that path of least would you say that they're they're approaching this in like with a defeatist mentality, like they're already defeated, or yes. do you think there's like a willingness there that there's a seed there that if they were properly motivated and supported, they would step up and challenge, even if the, the goal was to take a giant boulder with a sledgehammer, even well, if
1: it's that big. I mean, if you if someone actually showed you if you drive your sledgehammer in this particular way, the sledgehammer will, the, will crack the boulder you have mm-hmm. to hit it at this angle with this amount of speed in this way. Yeah, you would be more likely to pick up the the sledgehammer and and take a swing. And I think that students that are properly supported are more likely to come out and say yes, I'm willing to do this. I mean, it's it's the classic I right. am Spartacus example. Like yeah. if one person stands up and says, "Hey, I am for this thing," it's more likely. It's easier to get the second, the third, or the fourth person to stand up than it is the first. And a lot of that is just making sure that everyone has the resources that they need to stand up and say, no, this is not normal. This is not acceptable.
0: But this is the this is the thing that worries me the most, is in most cases, um, and the Spartacus one is is a good example, but it's also it's 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 a one kind of a one-off incident, I would say mm-hmm. that it's in most situations, it's not like that we would need to show them the precise way to hit a boulder effectively and that it's going to take one hit. It'd be more like, I need you to hit this boulder repeatedly as hard as you can and put in all of this time and effort. And then maybe you'll get a crack, but it's worth it in the end. You know what I mean? Like we're asking them to put it. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like there's like a willingness or an unwillingness to want to put that level of effort in because it does seem futile.
1: Well, and see, that's, that's the exact thing here is that people are, it is actually easier. And I thought about when I was in graduate school at ball state, I, there were conversations that I took that approach. If I pick my fight here, it's going to be worthless. I could have a really bad grade in the class. I could cost myself you know, some future opportunity, because I chose this fight that is there's no way I'm going to make any notable difference. I mean, I did spend a a good year and a half in the Indianapolis public school system as a science administrator before I really started to push back. And I understand, I, I don't, I don't agree. I'm not saying that it was the right thing to do. But I understand where they're at and why this is why I think that, you know, to kind of move away from our conversation for a second. This is why I think that the criticism that, well, all the teachers that don't like DEI just need to stand up and speak out is kind of an unfair thing to say. It's like, well, in that situation, I don't know that it's entirely worthwhile for them to throw away their entire career for something that may not actually make a difference. Indianapolis, after I left, is still doing the exact same stuff that it was. And so I I do think Mm. that's a very tough thing to actually dig into in this case.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about that, actually. Um, I think this actually is super relevant because there's 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 a there's obvious connections here with, with the, t- the way things are being taught in colleges, um, in research, and with regards to schools of education and the academy and how that is trickling down through the educators um, in K through 12. So I want to talk about your experience as an educator. Um, go into that a little bit. Tell us your story. But then also, I want to talk about how that's connected to all of this. And if there is any kind of movement that we can affect there at that level.
1: I think that, you know, to work backwards in this situation, Mm -hmm. there is definitely something that can be done because education programs in colleges are at the bottom of the funnel. So when you have an education program, you have to take, of course, you have to take content knowledge classes. So I was a science education major, a bio pre-med and science major. So I had to take biology classes and chemistry classes, but I also had to take, because of the education major side of things, psychology, sociology, developmental Mm -hmm. understanding, and all of these social science classes. Well, it's usually the social science classes at a university that are the most progressive because they're soft sciences. You don't actually need specific and hard data in order to teach psychology. You can genuinely... This is something that Freud pointed out near the end of his life. He's like, maybe I made some of this stuff up. You'll never know. And. The academy that published that, like some of those last thoughts from Freud were like, I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. And that is true. And so your education and then also your your nursing students are often at the bottom of this funnel. Mm -hmm. And whereas as nurses can kind of ignore that because no one's going to ask a nurse to give a lecture on social theory daily as an education major, you are expected to weigh in on social issues. That is part of Mm -hmm. how you express the curriculum being taught. That's pedagogy. So when I look at, you know, kind of this argument on are education programs producing really leftist teachers, oh, absolutely, because they provide the social framework for the backbone of your content knowledge, the flesh and the the muscles that hang on to those bones. And so I think that the biggest thing that should be done is pulling any kind of state funding out of any state institution uh, that teaches left-leaning sciences or requires that in its social programs. And then number two the idea that you should need some kind of special license to be a teacher is is patently ridiculous. It'll be obvious pretty quickly to a school district if you are unable to be a teacher within like two weeks of you're taking the job, if you got right. the interview. And I saw that on the ground, you know, to, to carry that through to my experience. yeah. The teachers that I thought were the most experienced often had some of the least amount of fancy collegiate education. I have two master's degrees in education. They were both complete wastes of money. If I could go back and not get them, I would. Uh, I am astounded that $20,000 went into two useless pieces of paper that didn't make me a better teacher. And although my undergraduate program was phenomenal because it was from a small Christian university who was staffed with professors that actually cared about building a cadre of students that sought after knowledge diligently and then also built moral character to go serve and lead. Aside from that. Like the actual psychology classes that I was even in in that university really didn't do anything to prepare me for the classroom. It wasn't until student teaching, and I was with this old grizzled, like student or my mentor teacher, Mr. Jones, old grizzled, wonderful, just
0: yeah. You're like you're you're you're, you're you know like on the ground yeah. soil
1: kind of guy. I mean like yeah. we're just excellent. <laughs> Didn't have all of the fancy academic stuff, but he taught with such skill and precision that only comes from years of mastery. And it was that that made me think that one of the biggest remedies from a society aspect, because we can't just count on the state to make laws to remedy every situation. I want to encourage families, to encourage schools, to embrace the apprentice and the master style of education. I mean- That's what built that's people want to talk about what built the United States. That's what built the United States, the tradesman, you will go and be an apprentice to this tradesman, whether they're in law, whether they're a plumber, whether they're a medical field, what name the field, that is what builds people. And by the way, that's the model that's set up through scripture and both Jewish scripture and Christian scripture. It's encouraged for that matter, even in the Quran in in Mm -hmm. both the forward and the latter parts of the surah. So this is something that humans have figured out that we've abandoned in our education programs because we like having degrees. Uh, It's really (laughs) embarrassing because that kind of decadence that we were just talking about has swept into academia. Having a fancy degree with a fancy university name on it has become more prestigious and worthwhile to many in the trade fields rather than the skills that are necessary to produce high-quality students. It's insane. Right.
0: Right, and that's what, I mean... I think I just talked about this when I was, when we were talking about like the loan forgiveness stuff that's been going on and we're talking the universities, this is like, most of it's a money-making scam at the end of the day, at this, at this point, a lot of what it is, is they want, I mean, why else would they recruit so heavily for degrees? Like why would they allow undecided majors? Why would they allow degrees like dance science or underwater basketball, these types of insane things, gender theory, all this types of stuff. It's like that, you're you're literally asking someone to pay tens of thousands of dollars and you're just like making money off of them. You, oh, you have yeah. no interest in their system. with
1: more hidden fees and upcharges than a two thousand five cell phone bill. It's ridiculous. <laughs>
0: exactly, exactly. Yeah. So okay. So on that on that point, let's let's talk a little bit about because I know I, I, I this might be a little slightly off topic, but I am curious what your, your education educator experience was as as an educator in the school system and kind of what you saw. Because I, I think this really goes it really speaks to what we're trying to grapple with right now, which is what is the way that some of these things are being communicated to students, um, and like, how, what what are some of the biggest red flags? You know, that's I think that's one of those really important uh, thing for people to notice. What are the major red flags here?
1: So I began my educator experience before I even went to university, uh, and I will fight tooth and nail to argue that. Years working in in youth ministry programs did more to prepare me for the classroom than anything else and gave me skills that set me miles ahead of the average new teacher coming out of university. So I worked in youth ministry five, six, seven years before I even got to the university level and taught me how to break down a lesson and to study something specifically and to create analogies that would put maybe a high level concept on the lower shelf. So after my my time at, at Maranatha, which was the university I went to as an undergraduate student, uh, I taught for a short amount of time at a charter school in Milwaukee and uh, really good time there it was It was a great cultural experience, actually learning how to communicate with students who didn't grow up the way that I did. And so it was an experience. It was a, a genuine little bit of culture shock in a good way. Came back and taught in Indiana. Uh, If any of y'all have seen the movie Hoosiers, that's the school that I taught at for a couple of years. I was teacher of the year those first two years and taught in Indianapolis. Then after that, at a kind of a sub-urban school, so not like a suburban school, but just on the outskirts of uh, what one would consider an inner city school and uh, had really rich kids, had really poor kids, had students of every kind of color that spoke all kinds of languages And in that one year, went from being uh, your average brand new biology teacher to being the head of the biology team and was writing curriculum and got those master's degrees and finally took a job for the Indianapolis Public School System, which had at the time about 33,000 students. And I was the science coordinator, so like the director of science for the school. So over like 230, 240 teachers and uh, also directing all of the science curriculum assessment Anything science or STEM related in that school for that time went through me. And so what I noticed is the biggest red flags came from teachers who preferred to be liked or preferred to be affirmed by mm-hmm. their students. Teachers who sought moral and social affirmation by their students were major red flags to me. Uh, I made fun of them in in conversations that often included them. I thought it was absolutely despicable and pathetic. Uh, And this it's so common, especially Mm -hmm. among female elementary teachers. Uh, They want to be mommy. And Mm -hmm. it took me a long time to articulate what it was specifically that disgusted me about these teachers. But I believe that it is a group of individuals who have so little community in their adult life that they seek after the affirmation of children who they can kind of shape into being worshipers of their being God. And I did see that. Often in in, wow. in Knightstown, I saw it in Lawrence North in Indianapolis, I saw that in IPS, in dozens of classrooms, not just in the sciences, but in English and math and music and art. And I continue to see it when I audit curriculum in various districts now. Several districts hire me on the down low, often because of my uh, friendly progressive trolls that follow me around everywhere, but they hire me to audit curriculum and come in and observe how the school's running.
0: Wow!
1: And it's really interesting to see how this, the difference between a really good teacher that gets results and a teacher who just produces mediocre wish washiness is where the teacher seeks their affirmation. If the teacher is closer wow. to the rest of the teachers in the building and gets their affirmation from other adults and the administration and parents, which is where I got my affirmation from parents and yeah. also from my community and the church that I went to and the friends that I had. Uh, But my parents were who I answered to and who I worked with. Some teachers don't do that. They just work with the kids And it's, it's disturbing. And realistically, any kind of social nonsense is going to funnel through that, whether it's, it's race or whether it's gender ideology or whether it's any kind of sexualization in the material that comes from a desire for your students to like you, to trust you more than anyone else. This is where the groomer aspect comes into play. And so this is a serious problem that has come through what I would call Disney culture in the last 30 years is this follow your heart and get your affirmation from the most innocent around you. It's a very, very, very dangerous way of teaching or really participating in any field at all.
0: That's so interesting because I think a lot of us, especially who don't work in the K through 12 uh, policy issue area, think that it's just teachers parroting the woke ideology that they learn about elsewhere or that they're kind of like trying to tout some sort of political agenda. There's not there's not really an understanding of the emotional and psychological background of kind of like why these teachers are susceptible to these ideas to begin with, why they're pushing them on the students. So that's something that's pretty new. And I think like, you're right. There, there is some exposure, especially with like the groomer aspect that is starting to be teased out a little bit on the right. Like people are starting to talk more about it, but it's still not something that is widely acknowledged or known about. Um, I mean, I, I kind of, I'm kind of curious then because these seem like more like foot soldiers who don't really know the greater plan of like the far left Mm -hmm. political agenda and they're just kind of being their insecurities are being used um like so that they can become pawns in this kind of a greater scheme right so what is the ultimate goal of all of this what's the reason that they that the the woke left wants to have these foot soldiers what is the end goal of like woke ideology at the end of the
1: day well let's just uh go ahead and move on a few years from the average teacher who gets their affirmation from their students. So the funny thing that you'll see, and and bear with me, because this is going right up the hill. Uh, yeah, if yeah. the average teacher who gets their affirmation from their students is not the student's favorite teacher, which is the most beautiful piece of irony that's ever been served. I find it amazing that mm-hmm. it's always the the rough and gruff teachers who, uh, to, to use the, the common phrase, could give a damn what their kids think about them. Uh, that's the teacher that ends up being the favorite of the students. Right. And your teachers who aren't that way, who do seek the affirmation of all their students, they look around and they see that and it infuriates them. Those hmm. are the teachers that more often than not, um, and you see this also funnily enough in more of the soft science education uh, teachers will go get their administration master's degree, which is full of all of this woke nonsense, which spends the entire degree explaining why you're so wonderful because you believe all of this progressive stuff and everyone around you needs your leadership desperately because they're not as enlightened as you are. I had class after class after class at Ball State University, classes I audited at University of Wisconsin-Madison, classes I've observed in the Ohio State University and Miami University, um, not to mention University of Miami in Florida. Uh, So the one in Ohio and Florida to to cross those both off the list, as well as all the way from Denver to UCLA to, to Dallas, And these things that I've observed, this kind of emotional rallying encourages them to say, you need to lead them because no one else is as morally great and as visionary as you are. And so then those progressives enter the administration and they start directing all of the teachers who just want that mushy-gushy social affirmation around. The goal of the left in this is to rally those who have no community, who have no purpose, who have really nothing of value that they're seeking after,
0: hmm.
1: to give them that in order to just do whatever it is that you need. So to rally them behind a candidate, to rally them behind a policy. Oh, it's okay if, if you're political because your, pol- your policy is moral, whereas the policy from any other perspective is, is evil and it's unfeeling, and those are always the words that they're hit with. So what high-level progressives see is just opportunity. Um, They're able to give you social affirmation and proclaim that you're some wonderful individual. I mean, this is what the unions do, right? With their teachers, the union teachers of the year. They'll tell you all about how sweet and perfect and amazing and visionary and like adjective, adjective, adjective you are. And then you'll do whatever it is they want. And so that's where I see the realistic flushing out of progressivism is in education. It's a very simple way of giving someone it's a great way to give an obese person chocolate, and then they'll do what you want because you gave them chocolate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: that's that's all it is. there's There's not anything super secret and devious about this. It's simply feeding hedonistic desires yeah. from an emotionally shallow person in order to get them to accomplish your political goals. That's why you don't actually hear someone at the elementary level espousing really high, actual philosophical understandings of critical race theory. They're just using the social racial talking points that they've been told are moral that they think is going to gain them affirmation.
0: Yeah. And then, so then they also have like these teachers conferences, which we've seen some leaked videos of of them being taught through PowerPoint presentations and stuff, exactly how to talk about these issues without alerting parents and how to hide information from parents and all these various things. So, and so I, so I'm just kind of, Putting all of this together Mm -hmm. um, and thinking more about what can be done, right? You mentioned teachers unions. You mentioned, uh, you know, you've got some of like the stuff going on in higher ed with, with education schools. What are your thoughts on some of the solutions here that can actually be effective?
1: Well, there's a, a negative and a positive solution. So kind of in the idea of negative and positive rights, there's a what you take away and then what you provide. And there has to be both because a lot of conservatives want to just say, well, let's just cut off funding and then that'll fix it. No, if you, you have to replace it with something better.
0: Right. So
1: yes, cut off money to the teachers unions. Yes, cut off money to state institutions that utilize educational campuses as political advocacy organizations. And I'm not just talking about teaching both sides. I mean, expressly discriminating based on ideology, race, religion, etc. Cutting that off is number one. Also, cutting them off of the monopoly that they have on the education system. So instituting school choice is a very major part of this. But then you need to provide good alternatives to liberal teaching programs. You need to provide good alternatives to liberal education systems. You need to pro- provide alternatives towards social institutions of, of mental therapy and, and psychology. And those need to be done in a way that is better than they themselves do it. It is to right. be done with excellence. Again, you know, it, as a Christian pointing towards the first Corinthians 1031, whatsoever you do, due to the glory of God, meaning that everything should be done with excellence, So that private school that you open, it better be a better school than the public school,
0: right? That private
1: college that you're opening or or whatever, that's going to teach people how to actually teach. It needs to be better than what it is that the public or the state university had provided. And I think that that is what's sorely lacking from the conversation. And this is what I love Mm. about folks like Jeremy Wayne Tate at the classical learning test and the institutions that they support. And this is why, even though I'm not Catholic, this is why I support a lot of smaller Catholic schools. The manner of excellence they bring to the table matters.
0: Right. Because
1: none of this can be mediocre or the left instantly has that as a pistol to draw and everything goes right back to normal. So that's why, at least on a personal level, I think there needs to be both the taking away of the money and then also a providing of better opportunities and right. just options in general, quite honestly.
0: Right. And then, so you've done... I mean, I'm assuming you've done some work on kind of like looking at the unions and and kind of like their role in all of this. Obviously, it's 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 not a huge secret at this point that they're no. They are they are
1: that. dying institutions though. The okay. AFT and the NEA are nationally dying institutions. They have not had a positive, a a net positive in enrollment, for hmm. eight years. Okay, well, that's eight years ago was the last time for the NEA, they actually post any kind of statistical data on teacher enrollment. And then the AFT is even worse, like no one has any idea how many teachers are in the AFT. They're not required to report it, which I think as a public sector union, they should be required to report how many they have in their union. I think that's very important. I think we need to start holding public sector unions to more accountable measures. But yeah, they're dying institutions just because they don't actually provide anything of value and teachers are becoming disillusioned when they have to take out literally one thousand dollars or more a year out of their paycheck to be a part right. of the union.
0: Yeah, which is which is kind of fascinating because the unions always complain about how how little the teachers get paid. So the irony there is just um apparent, is very apparent. Um, I mean, I I so my mother in law was a middle school science teacher um for her entire Let's go. career. Yeah, exactly. And she's, she's great. And, you know, she retired before a lot of this woke stuff started happening on schools and she lucked out and she was also kind of like in a rural town. So it wasn't really going to get hit there um, initially. But not saying that rural towns are, uh, you know, immune from this, because obviously some of their, they're the most, some of the most targeted.
1: No, but they're furthest from the inner cities. So that stuff right. is going to hit them last.
0: Right, right. But the thing about, one thing that bothered me, she mentioned one day, because obviously she was a union member and um, mm-hmm. it was just kind of like, accepted. You You are in the union. Um, there wasn't really an alternative or another option right. to not be in it. Um, and she said, we were talking about elections and she said, oh, she just votes off of the brochure that she gets every, every year from the union. And yep. the union just tells you who to vote for because those are the candidates most likely to protect educators' rights. Yep, that's and been a thing like,
1: for decades. Oh yeah, yeah.
0: And that that blew my mind because I didn't know that. And I was just like, "Wait a second, you're telling me that you don't even like do research on candidates to vote? You just literally vote the way the union tells you, and you don't even question it." That blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. And I wonder how many other folks are like that because she's very smart. Right. Um, but yeah.
1: Well, that's the Cold War weakness of the United States. That's Hmm. one of the ways that Americans accepted apathy because the government after World War II took up the role of what you should be concerned about and what research you should do and then what research Hmm. you should just leave to the establishing power. And that's something that the boomer generation absolutely failed. They crapped the bed on and everyone has been paying for it since. The greatest generation got home from war and was comfortable to let their colleagues go ahead and run the country And then the boomers never picked up the slack. And so generation after generation became more apathetic. And again, this is why the public education system is, is in the mess that it's in, is because as long as the engine light wasn't on, I didn't have to go check what was going on under the hood, which is a very poor way to run a society. And so, of course, people were taking brochures. And and by the way, in the 1990s into the early 2000s, on a smaller scale, you saw a lot of smaller Christian organizations providing similar brochures, and some of them were really well-researched, and some of them were just putting in establishment status quoist politicians who weren't actually doing anything or changing anything. So yeah, that voting by the brochure has become a trademark of American apathy that comes when you don't have to be an active citizen in order to be of worth to the society.
0: Yeah, and it's fascinating because that's like the exact opposite of what the country was built on and that you do have to be an active member of society in order to actually go on the right path. The founding
1: her. fathers talked about the importance of republican involvement more yeah. than any other issue, more yeah. than tyranny, more than states rights, more than the economy, more than like every single if you actually look at the original 10 Bill of Rights every single one of those is predicated on the idea that those are Republican interests of the average citizen. You have a duty to understand why we need each of these Bill of Rights. That's why we're not expressly explaining them to you. You should mm-hmm. already know them. And we don't have any kind of infrastructure like that in any age group in this country anymore. And quite frankly, Charisse, it's it's embarrassing.
0: It is embarrassing. I mean, I... I... I think about some of the stuff I've heard students say in higher ed, and it really worries me with the lack of desire to even know or or understand what's in the Constitution, because not only am I seeing the lack of just reading the Constitution, but there's not even a desire to question policies or even, even ask ask yourself, why is freedom of speech even a concern in this country? You know, there's the, the desire to ask the follow-up questions is completely absent.
1: Well, this is the, kind of the idea. They don't need to. Right. It, again, apathy works in this country because, you know, as we've already talked about, the extreme amounts of decadence. And also, we've been living off the dividends paid by the greatest generation for 60, 70, 80 years now. And so... You just, you haven't had, my parents didn't really need to read the constitution. Their parents didn't really need to read the constitution. Why should I? And then the social argument from socialists comes in and says, well, it's, you know, a 230, 250 year old document written by these slaveholders, how terrible. And that provides all of the moral reasoning they need to simply throw it into the trash can without any second thought of any political reason.
0: Yeah, yeah no exactly and so so in talking about all of this and like education and knowledge on on what's what's so important to the country um, and to society um let's let's touch a little bit on kind of what your thoughts are on the purpose of an education at the lower levels and the higher levels like what are the reasons we send student we send our kids to school in K, all the way up K through 12 like what are the reasons and purposes that that serves society and then so looking at higher ed what do you believe are the purposes there? Because I I'm becoming more and more convinced that it is kind of um, ultimately pointless to do higher ed unless it's like for a very specific skill set um, that requires years and years of training. So I'm kind of I want to get your thoughts on all of this.
1: I'm really glad that you separated the two uh, from younger education and higher education because I believe that at least the very basic educational standards should be getting you on even footing. With the rest of society to make up for some of the things that didn't come through just conversations with your parents before schooling so a basic understanding of reading of math of history an introduction to the sciences so that you get why the world is the way that it is Mm -hmm. and why you have the responsibilities that you have so an understanding of your civic rights and understanding of your civic responsibilities very very important After that, and there's some, you know, there's some argument really everywhere because no one's really delved into this for a long Mm -hmm. time on when secondary school should start. But in my opinion, I believe you should go and be an apprentice somewhere, period. You should go and be an apprentice, whether that's with a doctor. And I'm not saying how long the apprenticeships should be. Maybe it's 10 years, maybe it's five years, maybe it's 15 years. I used to, the master would decide when the student was ready to stop being an apprentice and start being a journeyman. And so I'm hopeful that whatever the trade would be it would be incumbent because I think that teaching is a job of the society um when people say oh it takes a village to raise a child people imagine the child wandering around aimlessly as this independent agent that everyone's chipping in advice to and that's not the case (laughs) the idea of a village raising a child meant that when the child was old enough one member of the village would take them and show them how to do their trade that was the idea You wanted to be a hunter, you went with the hunters. You wanted to be a Mason, you went with the Masons. You wanted to be an on and on and on. And this is kind of the thing that we've just lost in society. But this is also why you see such great character development in those who go into, quote unquote, the family business, like farming communities. Hmm. You see a lot of young men go on to farm after their fathers because they have such a great relationship with their dad in the educational process. And they come away with generations of knowledge and skill that the most amazing doctorates in any other field simply won't have about agriculture and ecology and how the land works because they have been with that master for 15 or 20 years, learning everything that his father taught him and his father taught him. And I think that whether you're a silversmith like Johnny Tremaine or you're even learning in in IT on, on the more high You know, economy fields. The master and apprenticeship relationship, or the master and apprentice relationship, is by far more valuable than any concept of secondary or collegiate education that we have today.
0: Right. And if it is determined during the apprenticeship that you need additional education, or like when to go pay for something to to go to school for a few more years, then there should be these types of not only trade schools, but you know, there. So, like, I guess the the only argument I've really heard against the uh, apprenticeship was mostly on specific disciplines, right? Which is something like if you're studying philosophy or if you're studying um, the arts, right, or, or or literature, then that's something that would take, that that would be more appropriate for the university style. I'm really I'm glad that you, on that.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm really glad that you brought that up because it always starts with the the criticism is in the specifics, right? If anyone ever starts a conversation with the criticism is in the <laughs> specifics, they're admitting that you're right. That's I lo- that's my first big thing. It's well, right. This, yeah, that's the exception. Yeah, this works 90% yeah. of the time. But what about exceptions? As though any individual yeah, on exactly. earth wouldn't be, especially in our society, if there's an exception, then that's why it's called an exception. Right. Like that's the point. In, exactly. in that case, again, this is also something we've learned already. Princeton and Harvard started out as ministry colleges. You do not have an average person in a a small European or American town at the time that was an expert on theology that could take on an apprentice. That wasn't something that usually was there. So the young men would go to colleges and they would sit under lectures and under masters of this incredible knowledge that also was centralized at these universities, because that's where all of the books were of that level. And then they would learn all of that material and then they would come back and then what would they do? they would ally with a master again, right? They would right. ally with the town, you know, pastor or something like that. And that's something that kind of amazes me when I because I've heard those conversations as well about, you know, philosophy or or law as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, should yeah. you go to a law yeah. college and hear from 18 great lawyers? <laughs> sure, as long as it ends with an apprenticeship, right? I mean, yeah, there might be a time when I need to go into a science lab community and, and work in various experience labs if I'm in the medical field, maybe okay, great. Well, that's what exceptions are for, but that's not going to be necessary for the other 80% right. of industry or arts related fields.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think something that you mentioned earlier with the father son relationship and passing down information from generations, there is this like passing down effect that it all that is that also exists with with the the, the person who is the apprentice, right? Like the person who is leading the apprenticeship, right? The, the, the master essentially. So that relationship in, in itself is educational and being able to pass down information from generations, you're also gaining something from that as a master, right? So I, oh, I'm curious about that. Yeah.
1: I mean, I I think that the whole, I learned, I I I learned my students taught me just as much as I taught them. I think that <laughs> sentiment in general is like ridiculous. That's not the word that I would use, but- right ridiculous is the socially acceptable word that I'll use. Um <laughs> that all said, I do think that there are situations in which part of teaching is failure. You mm-hmm. know, some of the best lessons that I learned was when I I arrogantly thought, "Oh, this lesson will be perfect." And then it fell on its face. And I had to actually critically analyze what it was that I tried to teach my kids and try a different approach. Parents right. have been learning this throughout their entire lives since the beginning of time. You have one kid that needs no you know, special introduction on how to pick up a spoon and eat. And then okay. the next child picks up the spoon and throws it at the wall. So that's, I mean, that's something you have to learn right. as a parent, how to teach different people. And I do think that is a learning experience that every master does learn. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've heard exasperated contractors who have very easily explained something to one individual, but the second one, they just couldn't get it if, you know, they were holding their hands and, and right. you know, moving them around. So, yeah, I think that's definitely an aspect of it, but that's part of the character growth that calls every master to teach. Every parent should be a teacher. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why kind of the segregation of the trades in our society has been such a damning thing to the American economy and the American ethos. We have teachers as the special class. And if you're a parent, you don't have to be a teacher because we have teachers already. And that's Mm -hmm. very dangerous. Again, it's that apathy that one can afford you know i don't need to nurse my child because the wet nurse will do it the maid will take care of those things that doesn't pr- that doesn't produce lasting societal impact in a good country that produces things that eventually fall apart and often a lot of resentment as a result
0: yeah no no i i, I completely agree and i i do think You know, that's where you get a lot of this like the communicative ability, the the debate ability, being able to discuss an issue or a topic very well, being able to articulate your thoughts. That comes, I was so introverted when I was in college. And when I started, so I was a dental hygienist for a stint. And a big part of that was educating patients on their dental hygiene and how to take care of their teeth. And that completely opened me up to like understanding not only the issue, but just people. And it really Open and I, I wonder, you know, when you think about people who just can't tolerate any kind of debate or dissent or um, challenging ideas, it's because there's just not they don't have that mental capacity to really explore ideas and and engage with people and try to explain things to them in a way that's actually genuinely educational or informative, and so. I mean, I do think that there's, there's a serious, because we lack the apprenticeship model here, that really opens this can of worms that we're seeing now where people just cannot communicate with each other properly.
1: And this is why we actually come full circle to the idea of indoctrination on Mm -hmm. a repetitive cycle, because you no longer have a direct and, and relational connection that has the student looking up to a definitive master of virtue. But you have this weird cycle of affirmative-based, emotional, whatever, that actually doesn't encourage learning. It doesn't encourage growth or exploration. It it encourages a a very feelings-driven response that is more ideologically connected to failure and to Hmm. hedonism uh, rather than a calculated balance of failure and of success, of understanding of the Abrahamic dream, which America is built upon. And not only those things, but it it creates enmity between parents and their children, between parents, children, and the school, uh, between the school and the community. And that kind of enmity was never, ever supposed to take hold in our society. There was supposed to be a commonality. Again, this is why the South failed in its economy is because it allowed such elitism versus the common man in its general societal practice. Whereas in the North, it failed in the same way, not 20 years later, because you saw some of the same kind of things in the Northeast. Like the Northeast during the Civil War was a cultural center because so many common individuals took upon their backs the cause of the community. And there was this encouragement as you need to be excellent and you need to pass that on to your kids because they deserve your time. The country deserves your time and you have something to fight for. And that kind of light died out in the Northeast and hasn't really been seen since. And so this is something I think that really should be brought to bear in these conversations, but is often ignored because it requires a lot of self-reflection. And it's not a conversation we're willing Which to have. Hard,
0: hard for people to do. Yeah. It's um because again, you have to be willing to admit failure and admit that you're wrong in order to properly reflect. And that's just not something a lot of folks are willing to do.
1: Sometimes days. I need to put down the phone and go read mm-hmm. to my daughter. And that's yeah. something that even though I do that a lot, I don't do it enough. Yeah. And, you know, every parent is, is you know, going to be critical of, you know, little ways in which they raise their kids. But that's, that's just something that I reflect on quite a lot is how, you know, you don't want to set yourself up for unreasonable expectations. But we could be somewhere if we did take things more seriously. And that's something that I hope that at least you and I, being millennials, that will will start to drive forward for Gen Z and I-Alpha behind yeah. us, is that the hedonism and the apathy just mm-hmm. isn't worth it.
0: Right. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Okay, so I want to end on a slightly positive note. Um, which is, you know, we talk about this vicious cycle of indoctrination. What are some of the things we talked a little about school choice? Um, what are some of the things that you're starting to see with the younger generations habitually, or their what they're driving towards, or with the teachers and educators that are trying to break this cycle?
1: Well, first of all, I'm incredibly optimistic about the direction we're heading, like unreasonably optimistic, some would say. <laughs> yeah, and that's because so many individuals, the, the counterculture right now. Which teenagers are all all have always trended toward counterculture for some of the first time in history, yeah, are tending towards positive things that they can do in their life and for their community that isn't based on feelings, but it's based on results. Mm-hmm. So individuals on average get more conservative as they get older. But what we're seeing right now is that the counterculture for teenagers is conservatism. And so yeah. they're they're like entering conservatism as a teenager, and then they're just getting more conservative and they're building better lives. You know, we're seeing mm-hmm fewer teenagers that are, you know, kind of going over into to, to drinking and to, to to drugs and to promiscuity than we saw in early term millennials, kind of the American pie generation, because they've just seen that it's it's worthless. I yeah. mean, I cannot believe the craze around getting good exercise and being hydrated and, and just common sense stuff that's coming out of Gen Z and I Alpha. And it's coming organically. Like they're not going to church to hear this. They are hearing this then they're going to church. And I I love that. I mean, that's something that I'm seeing, and it is causing a lot of teachers to kind of double down in giving those kids what it is that they need. Mm. And a lot of private, a lot of classical, a lot of charter schools, even in some cases, and also in a lot of micro and homeschool environments, I'm seeing a lot of adults give kids the resources that they need to be better individuals and the kids readily take it. And I think that that in and of itself is bordering on what could be, and I'm. This is where I'll say even I may be a little too optimistic here. It could be cultural revival. It's it's in the very early stages, and there's a lot of trepidatious ground, a lot of things that conservatives are going to have to come to terms with to actually support this and prop it up, because traditionally a revival has like a small class that that kind of enlightens the next group to take it and run. And we haven't really given Gen Z and I alpha behind the tools in order to run with it yet, but they are grasping in a way um, toward, I think Dr. Jordan Peterson is an excellent example of this. I mean, just the change that has been made in these generations that is inextinguishable. You don't see any ex Jordan Peterson fans. in in that way, you don't see hmm. any X um, like those who are going into Christianity and Catholicism and Judaism right now, you don't see them renouncing it. Like you, you right. see like, not just zealot kind of idea ideologies here, but embracing a lifestyle that works and produces immediate dividends in every aspect of their life. And I just see that forthcoming in a lot of education. That's why school choice. I mean, you're seeing parents involved in the kids education for the first time, 30, 40 years in American education. And I mean, deeply involved, and that's building connections between students and their parents and between local communities. That is very difficult to extinguish. Because even those kind of relationships, uh, the biblical concept is it says for these good things, there's no law against them. And I think that even those who would oppose us are finding it very hard to argue against something that is by rote nature so pure and so good to see, um, or they're at least having a more difficult time arguing against it. So that's a huge positive set of trends that I'm seeing.
0: Yeah, well, that's great because I mean I agree with you on all that. That's it's really I mean these are some really positive trends that we are seeing with the parental involvement. Um, parents realizing hopefully that you know this means that they're going to be more involved in their kids' lives at home and understand that you know and, and hopefully that we provide them with the tools that where that's possible. Like you said, it's a it's a matter of continuing to encourage that behavior and not just expecting them to do everything on their own because we lacked this effort and this momentum for so long in society, there's not a lot of infrastructure built around it. Right. So that's something that we really need to provide them with in order to, to continue down that trend. Um, Okay. Well, thank you so much, Tony, for joining the show. Uh, everyone, this is Well Said, where I interview policy experts, commentators, academics, students, and activists on issues of higher ed, free speech, and related topics in American culture and policy. You can share this episode on Facebook or YouTube, as well as our. Uh, you can find us on any of the podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Anchor. Download the podcast anytime and listen to us and let us know if you like what you hear by giving us a five-star rating. You can also go to speechfirst.org and press donate if you like what you heard today. I'm Sharice Trump, and Tony, that was Well Said.